Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right. So we're in Genesis 24 tonight. You can dig there. As a um, quick review, because I like to get us where we're at in the book of Genesis, and the further in we get, the more I have to edit the review, or it would take us half the night to get through the review. So God makes the whole world. He's concerned with human beings and this pure line of uh, Messiah. Um, And from chapters 1 through 11, he starts over with Noah, but people start getting into idolatry again and doing weird pagan practices all over the planet. Um, So then he zooms in, and we get to see what obedience looks like. In chapters 12, 14, 18, and 21, we see Abraham doing obedient things with God. And each time he does, in 12, 14, 18, and 21, God gives them a little bit more of this promise that he's got for Abraham. The first time it's, I'm going to make nations out of you, and then he expands it, and then it gets bigger. So the more Abraham's obedient, the more he gets to see inside what God's plan is for his life. Uh, He finally passes a test um, by telling his son to get on an altar, and he's going to sacrifice him. Oddly enough, Isaac gets on the altar um, and does that, and there is this sacrifice that Abraham's willing to do. Later on, we see that God actually gives credit to Abraham for having done it, because in his heart, he had willed to do it, but God actually interrupts him and stops him. Um, But God's found a human being that's willing to be obedient to God unto the point where he gives up his only son, uh, which is a model of something really powerful, this idea that someone would give something up that precious for a relationship with God. Then in chapter 22, at the very end, there was an odd little paragraph there that I actually skipped by accident um, until Katie reminded me there was more text at the end of the chapter. And we got to see this glimpse after this sacrifice uh, that Isaac is willing to make and Abraham's willing to carry out. Um, we get just this glimpse of that there's a bride out there in chapter 22. Rebecca is out there, and she is in the scene and comes into the narrative. Then in chapter 22, Isaac's not in the scene anymore. He's not even mentioned. Uh, And we see that Sarah dies, and Abe has to negotiate with the world uh, to find a place to bury her. Uh, And we see this chapter 23, this really interesting glimpse on how negotiation should look with the world. Abe has one final wish now as he's getting into his elder years in chapter 24, that he wants his work, this work to continue. Um, uh, and he wants Isaac to get this inheritance and to keep going. So Isaac's going to, we're going to start 24 and Abraham's going to be really concerned with now that I'm getting old, I want the work of God to continue through my son, Isaac. Uh, and he's going to handle that, hand that over. So the work of God is, uh, bringing glory to God, and Abraham does that everywhere he goes. In the spot where we see Abraham being obedient, 12, 14, 18, and 21, immediately after each of those, we see Abraham screwing up. 
and doing things on his own plan, on his own time. And every time he does that, it messes stuff up. But God keeps bringing him back and he keeps acting in obedience. And in that, uh, he's given the credit for being a man of faith. Not because he's perfect, but because he tries to carry out God's will. So he's doing the same thing here in his old age. So verse 1. And he wants to get a bride for Isaac. By the way, at this point, based on other chapters and spot, Isaac's probably in the late 30s, maybe 40 years old. So he's a late bloomer. And he hasn't found his bride quite yet. And you could see where Abraham would be getting a little worried. Like, man, he's getting to be 40, and I don't need him to get to be 100, like I did before this promise. Like, what's going on? And he, and he, and he, so he's trying to do this. And he has to think, where do I get a bride for my son? And he wants to continue to get someone who's pure for his, for his son. So verse 1, now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, we know from uh, earlier chapter that that, in chapter 15, that the servant that he said, well, right now I don't have a son, so my inheritance is all going to go to Eleazar. Um, but we'll come back to that. Um, the oldest servant of his house, who's not mentioned in this chapter, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Uh, now Abraham was old. We're thinking at this point that he's around 140 years old. Uh, Isaac's 40 in the next chapter, so we think Isaac's right around that age here too. Um, the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. Um, we've spent a lot of time with Abraham. We've been with Abraham for like a month and a half now. And we're starting to get a sense of his personality here. And when he's advanced in age and God's blessed him and everything, that sounds like a pretty good place to be. So what we look at in Abraham's life is, is a life that hopefully we get to be old people and we are blessed like he was. Um, I wanted to really quickly look at everything we've seen with Abraham. So doing a quick review of Abraham, I made two columns. There's the eh, is kind of screwing up column. And then there's the, yeah, he did all right column and some good things. So the path to a blessed life includes, he delayed leaving Haran in chapter 11 and 12. When he did leave, he brought his, his nephew Lot, who he wasn't supposed to bring, even though some of us really like our nephews, Levi. <laughs> he went too far in Egypt in chapter 13, so he kept going. Then he lied to the Pharaoh and, and almost gave his wife up to the Pharaoh. Then he commits adultery in chapter 16 and has, and, and has a child with a, an Egyptian slave girl. Then he lies to Abimelech in chapter 20 with the same lie that he did with the Pharaoh. Hey, that my, that's not my wife, that's my sister. And then he almost loses her again. And then he generally wanders around nomadically and doesn't set down any roots. Literally living in a tent his whole life. So that's the column where you're like, eh, not doing so hot. Father Abraham has a bad history in that sense. And then you go, yeah, what weighs that out in the scales of God's judgment? What does it take to weigh that out? In chapter 17, he makes a covenant with God, or more so God makes a covenant with him. So I don't know if that counts, but he covenants with God, or tries to. Then he falls asleep, remember? So maybe that belongs in the meh column, because he didn't quite make it through the whole thing. He falls asleep, and God has to wake him up. Chapter 14, <laughs> he honors God after the little battle with the kings. Remember, he goes back, and he gives a tithe to Melchizedek, 
and he just honors him. And we get this glimpse that everywhere Abraham goes, there's an altar to the Lord God and people start following God or at least honoring Abraham's God, right? So he's got that going on. And part of honoring God is when he does covenant with God, he takes his whole household and they get circumcised. Like, so everybody's involved in Abraham's faith. And when he has faith, he welcomes people into it. Then in chapter 22 and 23, he trusts in God's promise. And we see this evidence that Abraham acts based on what God has promised him, not necessarily always on what Abraham wants to do. Sometimes he does things he doesn't want to do, but we feel like God's made him do it. So what weighs out all the meh in Abraham's life is that he covenants with God, he honors God, and he trusts God. And at the end of the day, after all these chapters and all these months, I don't want to miss because we're not reading it straight through real fast. I don't want to miss the fact that that's really all Abraham ever did well, is that he covenants with God, he honors God, and he trusts God. And everything else that he does, all his screw-ups and everything else, really don't get weighed out with that. So clearly those true three things outweigh a ton of failings. The oldest servant in his house is Eliezer. Remember, and this is going to be important for tonight, remember that name when you translate it in the Hebrew is God is help or God is our helper, Um, which is going to be, I think, really kind of interesting here. Um, However, even though he has a name, in this chapter he becomes an unnamed person. And I think that's kind of cool. He's like a spirit. He's this servant that comes into Abraham and he brings him in. Um, But Abraham, the father, is going to give the helper a massive amount of authority. And he's going to let him go act on his behalf. The other passage in here, my family. um, In Genesis 22, 20, remember Abraham had heard about his family and Nahor and those folks. So Abraham hasn't forgot what he heard in two chapters ago. And he remembers it and he goes, oh, that's the group of people that I want to go back to. Um, And then there's this line, did you catch that? Put your hand under my thigh. That's a weird line. And I would say I struggle with it, but consider a few things. A, if you're going to swear an oath, they couldn't swear on a Bible because they didn't have one. So what do you swear on? Abraham's thigh? Okay, so it's tough for us to hear this but I think their culture was different than ours on this. It's just a thing, and even if you think of it as something to do with the circumcision covenant, that's going weirder than I even want to think about. So I'm really okay of just thinking under the thigh is just a really intimate position. Even if it's exactly what it says, if it's a literal thing, it means that Abraham's kind of old man, he's a geezer, and he's laying on his bed, and he's like, just put your hand on my thigh and promise me this, Right? And so it's this intimate position where they're going to swear an oath. They're going to covenant with one another. And he's symbolically swearing before God when he does this, that he's going to make a promise that he will die or fulfill, one of the two. The point is that it's a extremely serious oath. In fact, one thought is Abraham is really thinking about the Messiah, this promise of God and the line that has to come through his family or God's promise will come through his family. So he wants to know that if he goes, that his servant, this spirit helper, will help the son get to the right bride and make sure that that happens. So a wife for my son Isaac is the core of this covenant. Abe wants purity in the bride. Remember he thought the Canaanites were so nasty, he didn't trust that they wouldn't kill him and take his wife. So the practices of the people he's living with, he knows what they are. He still lives there. 
Um, but he's still not okay with how they practice, um, especially around uh, marriage and around the, the sacredness of marriage and those kinds of things. Uh, it's a relevant contrast in that he wants Isaac to take the right kind of wife. Remember, Ishmael took an Egyptian wife, and that was pointed out. So the second Ishmael took an Egyptian wife, he's not part of the line of the promise anymore because the Egyptians also had really weird, quirky, polytheistic, paganistic practices, and a lot of that had to do with sexual behavior and how it was carried out in those societies. We know from archaeology that the amount of venereal diseases in those societies was rampant, and it was actually things that could be detected even in the, in the ruins and in the, when they dug up these skeletons and in Egypt when they find things in the tombs. A lot of the problems were just throughout the society they had issues with this kind of stuff. And of course the Bible says they did too. So Abe's not willing to see his son marry outside of the faith. It puts the lineage in question. Verse 5. And the servant said to him, and I think this is smart of the servant, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? So in other words, the servant has a brain and he goes, so I'm going to travel all the way back to where Nahor's at. And what happens if this young lady I find doesn't want to hop on the camel and come back with me? Because that's abduction. And he's thinking this is, could be weird. So he's trying to make sure that if he's going to make a vow, that it's something that he can keep. And so his second thought is maybe I should bring Isaac with me. Um, but Abraham said to him, and this is important. This is where we get to see why this is important to Abraham. Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath, only to do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So the, the, the oath is made. So it's key here, especially if we're looking at this in the lens of typology, right? And I'll put all this together in a second. It's really important to note that the bride has a choice to make and that the, the servant is not obligated. So if she refuses to come back, if the woman's not willing to follow you, verse 8, then you will be released from this oath, only don't take my son back there. So Isaac never actually leaves the promised land like Abraham did. Abraham leaves the promised land. Isaac doesn't. And in that sense, he has followed God's command for his life um, to stay in the promised land completely. God's helper is there to invite the bride, but the helper is excused and not punished if the bride rejects it. In other words, the bride has an authentic and a real choice. She doesn't have to come back. So he's not going to abduct her. He's not going to haul her off and put her in ropes and and that sort of thing. But the son's not going back there. Isaac's not going to go back there. Um, there is a point where the son is tempted but stops in Gerar, and we'll see that in a little bit, in a lot of the same way that Jesus was tempted but doesn't actually sin. Um, so the idea of leaving the promised land is kind of a typology for sin. Um, Abe notes this is really important, and his logic for why this is important is because God said so. He doesn't provide any other reason. He basically says, this is how it's going to be because God said so. Uh, that's a symbol for Paul. 
Uh, Isaac found a worthy gift, and, and Abe arrange, arranges for the bride to be the gift to Isaac. Let me say that again. Um, it's important to the father that a worthy gift and bride is found for the son. And that's an important thing to the father. And the father arranges for the bride to be a gift to the son. That language is the same language Paul uses for the bride of the church being a gift to Jesus Christ. So Paul's reading this, and that's how he interprets it to write some of the most famous lines he wrote. If she chooses him, if she doesn't choose him, all bets are off, right? Note that the bride has to be found among the Gentiles. So the son's going to get a bride from out in the world that will come unto the son and be sanctified unto the son because she'll be purified by the and brought in and she'll be recruited in by the helper or the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels. I don't know what that's a typology for, but 10 camels is a really powerful parade in this era. I mean, that's a lot of wealth just in the camels, not to mention what they can carry. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand. He gets full authority. If we're looking at every word, all is one in this sentence that I wanted to point out. All of his master's goods were in his hand. And in, this, in the same sense, looking at the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has all of the power and authority of God because the Holy Spirit is God. Abe is willing then to give all to get this bride, everything. So he has all of his master's goods in his hand. Uh, and remember, even a thousand things of silver can fit on a camel or two, right? You can bag that up and bring it with. So basically Abraham's saying, anything that I have, I want you to take with you to get this bride. It's more important than anything in our family. Uh, so there aren't any goods, any silver, any gold, no gems uh, that would be as valuable as an amazing wife. And I thought that was a cool thought. Like Abraham being a really wealthy guy and has accumulated this wealth over 50 years, there's nothing that's worth more than a great wife. And it's totally worth it for your son to get that great wife and find that great wife. Grant, I don't have chests of silver to go find you a wife. So that's another thought. Oh, bummer. Another thought with the word all, it's kind of interesting that Abraham's willing to give up all this wealth for a bride, but in some sense, it all belongs to God. And I totally remember the first time I heard that was from a brother in Christ in Madison. And I was like, what do you do as a pastor when you have to tithe? Because your paycheck comes from everybody else's tithe. So do you tithe the tithe? And I just didn't know. I had no idea. And I, it was a childlike question, and I was a grown man, and he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he just looks at me, and he goes, it's all God's anyways. I give everything to God. I don't have a paycheck. I use what I need to to pay the bills, but otherwise, I don't really keep anything. It's all God's. Um, and I was like, wow, what a cool way to think about it. Everything I get actually belongs to God. He's really only asking for a tenth of it. But it really all belongs. If he needs more than a tenth, he can have it. It doesn't matter. It's just stuff. It's just camels. And camels spit. <laughs> that was my other thought. And I put it in my notes. They spit. <laughs> it had to be a horrible... If you've ridden on a camel for any amount of time, like at the fair or something, they're a wildly uncomfortable animal. Even master camel riders are like, camels aren't the best way to travel. Um, and but they carry a lot of stuff, and they can get through deserts, and that's important in this region of the world because they can do some stuff in dry areas. 
So the servant comes with gifts. And I thought that was going back to the typology. Likewise, when the Holy Spirit comes and seeks the bride, the Holy Spirit comes with gifts, spiritual gifts. And the Holy Spirit brings those gifts to the bride even before the bride meets the groom. So those gifts are going to be given to Rebecca well before she meets Isaac. In the same way, the Holy Spirit brings and finds the bride, makes a request, she gets to say yes or no, and then the bride comes into the faith, and then the gifts are given. And there's these spiritual gifts that come with it. So, and he arose, oh, I finished the sentence, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, it doesn't say Ur of the Chaldeans, which is where we last saw Nahor. So at some point, Nahor has founded his own city, and archaeologists believe that's actually in northern Israel. So he didn't, I've actually, some commentators say he had to cross this big, huge desert like the Magi coming on Christmas, and he had to go all the way back to Babylon's territory, or Ur of the Chaldeans. But this, it says the city of Nahor, so if you just read what it says... I'm not sure it was that long of a trip. However, it'd still be a really long trip riding on camels. So this is no short thing. And, and Abraham thinks he might be dead by the time he gets back. That's why he's making him vow these things. Because he's an old 140-year-old man, and he's thinking, I could go anytime soon. The reality is he doesn't go anytime soon. He still lives for a very long time. Uh, but Nahor, the elder, had um, would have lived to be about 100 and... Or, I'm sorry, Terah... Oh, Nahor the elder had Terah at 29 and lived to be 148, according to Genesis 11:22. Remember that Terah was Abe's dad. So when Terah and Abe go up to, oh my goodness, what's the name of the city where, where they stopped? What? No, it wasn't Hebron. It was, I don't know, fill in the book. Oh, there's just the thing on the tape. We, I actually remembered it there and said it, but you didn't hear it because the tape stopped or something like that, right? <laughs> so, But remember, Abe dwelled with him here for a while, and then he came down. My thought is Abe came down, and Tara got on the phone and said, Hey, Nahor, I need your help up here, because Abe just took off with all the stuff. So then Nahor would have came out of Ur and went up and stayed with him. And since that time, he actually came down not very far, because the Fertile Crescent goes like this. And actually, in your view, he came from Babylon up, over, and then down. And then the city of Nahor would be right in that territory. So northern Israel, Galilee territory, um, up and up in there. Actually, if you go into the map to see where Nahor was, if you remember when I showed the picture of the trees of the Megiddo Valley, Nahor's on the far west north side of that valley. So it's a great place to settle in and do your thing and, and whatnot. So... Thus, the word Mesopotamia, which is where this gets mixed up, is translated differently in different Bibles. Some of you might not have Mesopotamia. You might have Aram Naharam, which is where we know archaeologically where this would be at. So, um, yeah, so there's that. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds. Um, so why is, his, why is Abe sending his servant back to these people that he was supposed to get away from in the first place? So in Joshua 24.2, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So why is he sending them back to this place where they worship other gods? And it could be that they're in those territory and they worship other gods, but they're keeping their 
family culture pure. Um, in other words, we live in a country where they worship Christmas large men with white beards, which have nothing to do with Christianity, but we don't necessarily change our marriage practices as a family or as an extended family because we live in a country that has pagan worship. Does that make sense? So it could very well be that his family had some things that kept them pure or that they weren't doing the things that the people did in their societies, but within the family it was good, which would explain why Abe says, I need you to go back to my extended family to find a wife for my son. Those are the only people I trust in this. And if that's the important narrative, that would explain why that happens. Um, both Terah and Nahor then would have been there when God first spoke to Abe. So here's another thought. And, I, and, and I'm saying all this because this gets to be really contentious <laughs> with some of these things. So when Abe first heard from God, he would have told his brother and his dad, God just talked to me and here's what God said. It is likely then that both of them changed some of their practices because their son had heard from God. Like everyone else who's met Abraham honors Abraham's God because they can see the power of God. They can see how it's changed his life. And it makes sense in that sense too that they would have changed their practices. So Joshua's making his point, you know, that lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. That doesn't mean that they didn't stop worshiping other gods when Abraham heard from the God, if that makes any sense. So it doesn't necessarily make Joshua inaccurate because they did start out in that land and they did worship other things. But there's good evidence that they're not in that territory of the world now. Okay, so they might have both converted according to Laban. If we go forward to Genesis 31:53, it's interesting how Laban, and we're going to see Laban a little bit more, he's going to become a character. But Laban actually says in Genesis 31:53, may the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Laban's referring to one God, and he's referring to Abraham and Nahor's God. Another piece of the Bible where apparently Nahor has converted, and he's converted to be a worshiper of Yahweh. So it could be either one of those things. Uh, point being, they once worshipped idols. They may or may not still be doing it, but they've been given credit for worshipping Abraham's God too. And they may have once lived beyond the Euphrates, but they can also move, which makes both, in my hand, these don't seem to be one or the other because people say, well, the Bible's mistaken here. I don't know if it's one or the other because people move, especially people that are nomadic sheep herders. Moving's not out of the question. Moving long distances is not out of the question. We actually see Abraham doing it the same, and the family business may have them moving around. We just didn't get the narrative of when Nahor moved. Is that too much on that topic or kind of interesting? Okay, I'll keep going. All right. <laughs> I had more notes on that. Oh. <laughs> uh, one last thought. If neighbor Nahor now has an entire city, that means God's blessing Nahor too. Abe's not the only one getting blessed. And Melchizedek was the priest of an entire city, which means God's actually blessing a lot of different people on the earth that serve and honor him, as he does today. It's just not all of them are making those stories into the Bible, which means there's probably a real big library in the, in the, in the heaven that has all these stories. And we can hear the story of Nahor. This is a guy who would have converted, 
would have moved a lot like Abraham, had a whole city that got founded. And I'm a little curious what that story looks like too. Because when the servant goes to the city of Naor, he doesn't seem to be that picky about which woman is there for Isaac. It's anyone in that city, and he asks for God to give him direction on who that might be. I think that's kind of cool. That means that entire cities are getting converted to Jehovah that we're not reading about in this book. But anyways, and Abraham would have heard about that. And he's like, that's where I want to get a wife from. There'll be some nice young ladies up there. It's why people send their servants to Minnesota to find brides for them, you know. Verse 11, and he, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city well by a, uh, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time and time when the women would go out to draw water. See, women plural, he's not looking for a woman here. It's any of them. Making camels kneel down, really tough. When you do that, it means he's camping outside. He's not planning to go or get an inn or anything. They're making camp. Because um, camels are ornery suckers, and they don't just <laughs> kneel down. Um, he's, he's, the well of water would have been, every city would have had a well. That's why it was so important when Abraham negotiated for the well. Those wells were the life source or the food for the, the animals, and they can eat grass, but you got to get water from somewhere. The woman would go out to draw water in the evenings because hauling water in those big jugs was hard work. And I've never understood, and if I could go back and talk to whoever invented ancient cultures, why did the women carry the water? I want to know what the men were doing in the evening to make the women go out and carry these big jugs of heavy water. That seems like a dude job, but that's just me. So it's cooler to do it at night. They would all go out. Here's the other thought. Drawing the water may have taken lots of time, so maybe the women volunteered to do it because they could share the city gossip in the evening. Like they could all be telling, well, what happened with your day and what was with your day? And you just have one of the younger women pulling up the buckets of water and filling the tubs and you know what I mean? But it's really just kind of a chatting time, which is why they all come out together. Otherwise, they would have worked out a system where they take turns. Because if guys did this duty, it would have been like, I'm at 8 o'clock, you're at 8.30, you're at 8.45, I'm going to get my water, I'm going to go down. It would have been organized, there would have been a little chart next to the, the wells, and it would have all been taken care of. Verse 12. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day, and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you've shown kindness to my master. So any recorded prayer in the Bible is a big deal for us as Christians. Let's look at how people pray. But any prayer in the Bible that gets answered specifically, I really want to take a look at that. Like, I want to know that kind of prayer. Um, I think it's worth kind of going through this prayer phrase by phrase and be thinking and reflecting a little bit about how we pray. And I'll go back and give some more thoughts on this passage. But this is a really powerful thing. Not only that, but if Eleazar, the eldest servant, who remains unnamed in this chapter, so I shouldn't even say Eleazar, but if the servant is praying to God, and that prayer is answered very specifically, this is how God would want us to pray, because this is almost like 
God's model or typology of how the Holy Spirit would ask for things or appeal for things. Asking God talking to himself. Starts out with, O Lord God. And I love that phrase, and we see a lot of prayers in the Bible start out with the very first words out of someone's mouth when they pray in the Bible is usually acknowledging who God is. Instead of, Lord, help me get homemade pizza tonight. It's, oh, Lord God. And this idea of acknowledging who you're talking to, which I think puts you in a position of respect. Overall, this prayer is a please help me prayer. And that's there are types of prayer. And I think that it's interesting when you see a please help me prayer because the servant has taken a long journey. They've, gone, they've already stepped based on what they were commanded to do by the Father. I like that he prays for kindness to my master Abraham in verse 12. You see a humility in that phrase where this servant has no problem taking on the role of number two. He doesn't matter in this story. That's why he's not named. What matters is that Abraham the father and Isaac the son have a bride for Isaac, and that's the blessing, and it's what he prays for. How many people pray for themselves when they pray versus taking on the role of number two and, and praying for others in an intercessory way and making a huge portion of your prayer time not to pray for things for yourself, but to pray for things for the people you love. My master Abraham, a second thought on that phrase, he's praying for his boss. And I think that's wonderful. I think that's something that we should all do, even if we're not employed. You should pray for, if you're not employed, pray for whoever pays your bills, Grant and Katie. And then, <laughs> um, but not only having the humility to be number two, but also having that idea of praying for whoever your boss is, that it's really important. You may or may not have a, a believer as a boss, but you should still hold them up in prayer, that they would be wise, that they would be smart, that they would keep the business alive. Um, those kinds of things. Um, success this day. Uh, where did I see that? Uh, oh, please give me success this day. I just put them in the wrong order. I like that he pr pr he doesn't pray for success and generally prays for success this day. Not every day that we have in life is a success. Some days we get to the end of our day and it was not successful. It just sucked. That was a bad day. And other days we get to the end of the day and we say, that boy, that was a success. And I, I do think that sometimes bad days are part of how God coaches and trains us, gives us a humble heart. But I love the idea of just saying, praying for one day at a time, that each day is worth praying for. Give me success this day. Show kindness to my master. Here I stand. Um, I just thought that, that here I stand is kind of an interesting phrase. Behold, he's saying to God, behold, look at me that I'm standing by this well of water. In other words, I've done what you've asked me to do, and I'm in a place where you've asked me to be, and I'd like to act as you want me to act here. And I think that's interesting. And we see a lot of examples of that where God asks his servants to move first, and then God shows them what to do next. So it's a step-by-step -step kind of faith. So when he says, here I stand, basically, I've been walking in your way as long as you wanted me to, Lord, and now I'm standing. What do I, where's my next step? And I'm not going to take my next step until you show me where to step. We are where we are because God put us there. At least, can we honestly pray with the assumption that we're where God wants us to be? And for me, that was really convicting. 
So if I say, here I stand, Lord, what do you want me to do next? That assumes that I'm standing there because God wants me to be there. I've been following him all along. Um, and what a beautiful place to be when you can pray like that. You're up there at the place where um, the servant is and where other heroes of the faith are praying. Then he says, now let it be. He makes this request after doing all that kind of conditional work. Because the servant's not named, all the credit goes to God. There's a complete supplanting of his own will, his own ego. He's not praying for himself. He's praying for Abraham. He's praying to God, for God, so that he can find this woman for Isaac. And then he gives this condition, <laughs> which is wonderful. Um, later on in verse 50, if you just down in the chapter, all of this comes back where... And I, the point was being that he doesn't name himself, so God gets the glory. In verse 50, God gets the glory. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. And part of that is whatever happens and whatever's about to happen from this prayer, um, God's going to get the glory for it. And that's the important part of this story. Um, the average kindness would be to share a drink. So when I show up and I'm at the well and all the women are gathering their water, taking turns, dipping their buckets, and I got 10 thirsty camels behind me, the average thing to do when you're thirsty after a long journey and these kind women see, wow, look at that traveler. He looks exhausted. And the servant says, can I have a drink? Sure. Here's a cup. Here's a drink and take care of yourself. That's average kindness. We shouldn't overlook in this prayer that what he's asking for is a complete miracle. To have a human being that's down doing chores, see some stranger, and then volunteer to feed Tem Campbells, I wanted to look up how much water a camel would take care of. Oddly enough, and you shouldn't be surprised, camels have storage tanks on their back. When they're thirsty after a long journey, they can drink up to 20 gallons of water. Times 10 is 200 gallons of water she just volunteered to get for this guy. She ain't getting home till after dark, right? So if, if Rebecca's going to volunteer that, she's volunteering hours of her time to help this guy who's perfectly capable of getting his own water. I mean, she could have said, let me give you an empty jug so you can get your own water and take care of the camels after all the women have gone back because we're not getting water for you. You're some stranger. So he's asking God, and remember Abraham said an angel will go before you. He's really asking for that angel to do its job. Somebody's got to work on Rebecca's heart here to make her think this would be a good idea to volunteer to feed the camels. And I don't think she was dim or didn't understand how much camels could drink, I think she was just really kind and really hardworking and just kind of an amazing human being, right? She had to have been exceptional because I don't think any of us can honestly say we would volunteer to feed 10 camels. No, not at the end of our workday. She's exceptional. So he prays, let her be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac. If I see this happen, God... What if he doesn't see it happen? Well, he's going to start keep looking for a bride. He'll work through town, but he'll have to do it the hard way. He'll have to go about trying to find a bride. But he gets there the very first night, and he's like, maybe, Lord, you'd be willing to make this easy. If I see this, we're done. 
Like, I'm not going to go hunting around. You have found this bride for me, and this will be a done deal. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. I don't know. Rebecca has a huge choice here, but God knows what she's going to choose. So, Lord, you've led me here. Please keep leading. And by this I will know is the last part of the prayer. Rebecca's not the only one coming down. It said the women of the city would come down. Um, so this is a selection process. I'm thinking he's like, I'll ask all the women, can I have a drink? Can I have a drink? Can I get a drink? Can I get a And then one of them will say, well, yeah, and do you want me to take care of your camels too? And he's, well, there she is. He didn't, I don't know if he knew it would be the first person he talked to. So anyways, just a thought. Looks aren't everything, because he says, by this I will know. And I'm saying that because of the next verse, um, or in verse 16. It's not that he's looking for a beautiful woman, because by this I will know, this is not, will she be gorgeous? This happens to be, does she have the kind of heart that would feed 10 camels? That's a supernaturally amazing heart. Verse 15, and it happened before he finished speaking. I love that. Isn't it cool how sometimes when we pray, God's already working on the plan before we even pray? He knew we were going to pray. He knew what was going to happen. Before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebecca. I like how he prayed, behold. Behold, here I stand. And then the next line is, behold. In other words, God's saying, look, I've already sent her down to you. It's already taken care of. And that behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out to her with a pitcher on her shoulder. Common theme in the Bible that when people obey and pray, God's already working on them answer. And we already saw that with uh, um, Abraham. We've seen that, I think, with Noah, that sometimes when we pray and we ask for things, God's already working out what he's going to do. Um Rebecca likely left the house uh, prior to the servant getting all the camels down on their knees. So it's all happening in one moment. I remember when we were in northern Minnesota and I was principaling, and I was having another one of those moments where I'm like, God, I don't know how much longer you want me to principal. The moment came in the cafeteria, and I was bored out of my skull. I'd spent the whole morning walking the hallways with nothing to do. Everything was running smoothly. None of the kids were getting into trouble. All my work was done and taken care of, and I was just kind of going, hody home, hum. So I'm walking around the cafeteria. The cafeteria is just calm. There's laughter. There's joyful. The school is just at peace. And I realized I have nothing left to do. If I really do my job well as a principal, then I have nothing to do. Like, that's a good principle. And I realized I don't know if I'm wired for this because I like to do things. I got a motor, and I want to keep making things happen. And I couldn't do that for her. So I came home to staff and I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do. So we prayed about it and we put in applications to the top 10 grad schools in the world for curriculum and instruction design. And I thought, well, let's see what happens if one of these schools comes in. Well, one of them, the number one school, UW-Madison, right, I get a phone call from one of the professors and they say, are you a principal? Yeah. Do you do games in the classroom? Yeah, I did. Cool. I got more projects than I can handle you can come here, get a free ride, and we'll take care. We'll put you in faculty housing and blah, 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 blah. So I go back to Steph, and I'm like, well, this is kind of a cool opportunity. And we were praying about it. We didn't know what to do. We didn't quite know where we were going to end up or what the first contract was going to be. And then we get a phone call, and we pray to God, God, give us some guidance on this. And we get a phone call from 
an old friend of ours from college. We hadn't seen him face to face for a decade, maybe five years. Maybe you'd seen Kristen sooner than I had. She calls us up. They're missionaries in Indonesia. And she goes, you know, we were just thinking about you two. And we just had a word that we felt like was right from God that we needed to say to you two. And we, and the word is, was something like, you should go for it. And we don't know what that is or what it, if that's relevant at all or whatever. And, and we're just like, wow, when did you get that? Well, it was in the last day or two we've been doing that. So God had already been putting it on their heart to call us before we started to pray to figure that sort of thing out. And Steph's looking at me. She's, we're going to leave and Steph's going to be like, you got that story all wrong. Um, that's how I remember it. And I just remember being really blessed at how good God is. That God gives us the words of encouragement we need when we ask for it and we pray it. We're trying to be obedient. We're trying to do his will. And then you start doubting what you're doing. If you go to the Lord in prayer, sometimes the answer comes before you've even prayed. Um, so before he even finished speaking. And praise the Lord that all things are in his hand. What an amazing thought that God has things under control and he's doing it. So verse 16, now the young woman was very beautiful. Not a lot of, ad, is that an adjective? The word very is not often in the Bible. The Bible is not given to exaggeration. Um, it's usually pretty precise with its language. So it's interesting that we see the word very beautiful here. Um, it's super rare in the Bible. So she must have been a looker. Obviously, out of a whole city of women, this is the one that caught the servant's eye. She's a virgin. I don't know if the servant could see that. Um, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. <laughs> uh, the, other one, the only other woman we've seen that was called beautiful was Sarah, right? So she's in, she might be good for this family. Um, with the virgin piece, remember that's really important because that's part of what's going on with the whole narrative of Genesis. It's the reason for Noah's flood is that the women of the earth were intermarrying with sons of men and getting into messy stuff, right? Her purity then is here as valuable in this narrative because they do point that out. Her purity is actually really valuable and it's part of what makes Rebecca as a young woman valuable to the servant is that she has kept herself pure. A little water, I love that. He doesn't mention the camels. He's leaving that to God. Like, God's got to put that on her heart, but he's not going to do it. He's not going to try to initiate what, what God's going to do there. So he starts the conversation, and he's going to let God follow through. It's like that anytime we deal with anybody, we're supposed to initiate the conversation because the Spirit's telling us to, but it's God's job to see that kind of thing through. This is an archetype of what we see with God's students throughout the Bible. We take the first step, God takes it from there. The request is super small, and I like that. And if this is, again, I'm, I'm looking at each part of this through the archetype, but Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All the servant is asking of the bride is for a little taste of water. Can I just have a drink, please? And she just pulled up a whole container, and all the servant wants is a little drink. And I love the idea that when God calls us, he doesn't ask that much from us. You know, he says, can you just worship me above all the stuff you see around you? Can we just have a relationship? That's really all God asks for at the beginning. But she wants to give so much more. Verse 18, so she said, drink, my Lord. And then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when, he had finished, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, 
I will draw water for your camels also. She doesn't even volunteer. She just says, I'll take care of your camels too. Wow. Until they've finished drinking. That's all 20 gallons. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran back to the well of water and drew for all his camels. And the man, as we should be, wondering at her, remained silent. Like his jaw is on the ground <laughs> and he's going, whoa. And then look what he does. So as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. He's just in awe of God. Like, wow, God, this is too much. This is crazy. I'm thinking while he's remaining silent, he's quietly, he's quietly saying, wow, Elohim, <laughs> it's her. Like, really? I didn't even have to look hard. It's the first one he talked to. There is no coincidence here. This is completely designed by God. Notice the words throughout this narrative. Then she quickly, then she ran. He rushed to her. She ran to him. This isn't just kindness. This is enthusiasm to work. And I know that's a hard message for 20-year-olds, but it shouldn't be. Work is really good, and it's part of what the servant or the Holy Spirit sees in the bride that's exciting. Are we enthusiastically serving the Lord? Because it's the heart that's really encouraging, and it's, the, it's Rebecca's heart that shows through here. This is quite a young lady, and she's not just doing... She's not just volunteering to feed the camels. She's saying, I will feed your camels. And then she ran back to the well to draw water. She's like happily running around doing this. I get like the sense of a little fairy sprite. And she's just like, doo, 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 like Cinderella whistling while she works and having all the animals help her and whatnot. Uh, Rebecca is quite an image. And no wonder in verse 21, does he sit there and wonder? In Hebrew, the word wondered is sha'ah. It's the only place in the Bible that this word gets used. So how do we interpret it? Well, we got to look at Jewish texts and stuff like that. There's no commas in our translation. I have commas in verse 21. There's no commas in the Hebrew. So the primitive word, idea of this word is interesting. It's whirling into giddiness. That's what the word means. So when you spin yourself around on one of those, I don't know if they have those in the play gyms anymore. They've been taking them out because they're hazardous. They're but so fun. those little spinny dubers. Those are my favorite things ever. The reason they're favorite things is because you spin on them enough, it actually disorientates your head and it makes you laugh. And you go, whoa, and you start giggling and you get giddy. So the word sha'ah is to spin yourself around until you're giddy, right? I thought that was really cool. It's translated here as this kind of, he's so stunned in amazement, but it's that calm before exuberant. It's that something amazing just happened in front of me, and it's that short moment between you realize God just did something incredible, and you start praising God. It's the whirling moment before getting this. I thought it was, when I looked that up, I was like, what a cool word, because that's how I would feel if I prayed that prayer, and then that just happened in front of me. This Rebecca force of nature starts doing her thing and you're like god holy moly and you just think this is crazy and what do we do in the face of a miracle a lot of times remaining silent is about all we can do and you think i don't want to forget any of this which is why for the rest of the chapter he gets really repetitive and starts repeating himself is because this is one of the first god stories in the bible this is i prayed god answered my prayer holy moly 
To remain silent here, the word for that is to inscribe something in stone, to hold one's peace or to do plowing work, right? So it's a common translation in the Bible, but it's not always about not talking. It's about to hold that thing inside of you. So put the two words together. The man whirled to giddiness, but kept it silent inside himself. So he's watching this happen, and on the inside, he's exuberant. And on the outside, he's like, I'm going to keep my cool here, right? But it's kind of a fun thing. So the servant here is whirling on the inside and then inscribing it at some level. I will not forget what's going on here, okay? And the servants, I think with the inscribing part, the, the hold one's peace or the uh, to remain silent, I think he thinks he's still on the job. Like he's supposed to record this mentally and bring it all back to his boss. Um, and I think that if we look at the Holy Spirit, that's part of what the Holy Spirit, it, the Holy Spirit is a still small voice, right? It's not this big wa- rush. It's not in the wind. It's not in the, the roar of the sea. It's not in the fire. It's the still small voice that we see the Holy Spirit acting throughout the Bible. So the servant is actually behaving in much the same way, uh, which fills the narrative and the typology. So the servant gets to sit back and enjoy God's work. So verse 22, so it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel. (laughs) Who wants that hanging off their nose? And two bracelets for her wrists weighing 10 shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? I'd like to meet your dad. I think it's cool when you meet a really neat person, especially a neat young person. Listen, Zach, you're like this for me. I really wanted to meet Zach's parents. You know, you meet a young person, and it brings honor to the parents instantly. Because you see somebody with a great work ethic, a cheerful attitude. They're running to get work done, and I will help you, and I'll do this. And you're like, who raised this kid? And I think that's really cool. So now he's asking for a place to stay, even though the camels have already taken a knee. That means redoing all that. So she said to him, verse 24, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Milka's son. (laughs) I'm the daughter of so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so, like this is my grandparent. She's given the whole story. Whom Whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Few things on this. This confirms that God just led him right to Nahor's family, not just to Nahor's city, but right to his family. That had to, again, be jaw-dropping amazing because it just keeps getting better, right? The servant gives gifts to the bride well before the marriage. Remember I pointed that out? So she makes a decision to take a step towards God, to take a step towards Abraham's family, and instantly the gifts start coming from the servant. Doesn't, there's no wedding yet. None of that has happened yet. But the gifts start moving as soon as she's doing those sorts of things. The nose ring thing was not shocking to this culture. There's nowhere in the Bible where we, we're supposed to think that's significant. Um, clearly, that means that how we look is culturally contextualized. Because later, Paul says, you know, a thousand years later, Paul says not to decorate yourself with all that jewelry. And here in the Old Testament, they are. So you find some Christian traditions that say women shouldn't wear jewelry. And they take the passage from Paul to make that point. But clearly they're not seeing that here jewelry was actually given as a gift. um, And she puts it on. So it's not, apparently, depending on what time of history you live in, there must be a different biblical message there. But in this sense, you know, throw that nose ring in, hang it right off your face. 
Mmm. Good looking. That's wow. That's a nose ring. How do you hold that up? <laughs> so I, I like how they add the weight too. Like the bigger the nose ring, the more beautiful the woman. <laughs> Is that a thing? And so we don't get to know all that, and I think that's interesting. I love that she tells about her whole family. She doesn't just tell about her parents. She tells about her grandparents. I love that she has the authority to invite someone over and come into her home. I think sometimes the Bible is accused of being extremely sexist and, and patriarchal and that sort of thing. I just don't see that when I read the Bible. I see a young woman who has the authority to invite 10 camels over to her house, and nobody blinks an eye at that. So clearly this isn't a uh, male-dominated kind of thing. Women and men worked in partnership in history. Uh, we do not see a history here where women are oppressed. We see a family where women actually have a lot of say-so, at least in the Abrahamic traditions and in his family. Verse 20, 26, Then the man bowed down his head and he worshipped the Lord. What do you do when you see a God story? You drop to the ground and you worship the Lord right where you're standing. So either Rebecca thought this guy is nuts or she knew that he was worshiping the Lord. And I think it's the latter. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me being on the way, and again, that goes back to that here I stand. As for me being on the way, the Lord has led me to the house of my master's brethren. Doing the will of my God, God has led me. And I think that's an interesting kind of combination of phrases. Pausing for a sec with that thought. This is the easiest formula for happiness ever. In fact, it's the only formula for happiness. I was talking with a young lady this week who's just been having a tough go of it. She's getting medication, she's seeing a counselor, she's struggling with depression, she has a toxic boyfriend, all these kinds of things. And, it, and I run into these students all the time, and um, the path towards happiness is to follow the Lord, to do his will, to be his servant. That's the only way to really be happy in life. Uh, it's like riding a bike. You can't steer a bike at a dead stop. I mean, you can try to balance on it for a little bit, but eventually you tip over. The only way to really ride a bike is to start moving. And when you're moving, steering, you just touch those handlebars and poof, you're turning, you're moving where you want to move. So movement is actually easier to steer when you're moving, not when you're at a stop. And people that get depressed tend to not be serving other people. They tend to not be in the faith. They tend to not be with a community of believers. And then you ask these tough questions. In fact, I asked her, I said, can I ask you a super tough question? And you know what the question is, Alyssa, because you've heard me. How long did you spend in the Word today? Well, I didn't really get to it. Today. Okay, all right. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. On average, how many minutes a day do you spend in the Word of God? Well, uh, if you had to pick, it's not like a right or wrong answer. Maybe 15. And I think she's being generous with herself based on her tone. So, well, how many, if you combined breakfast, lunch, and dinner, how many minutes a day do you spend eating food? Well, about 30 minutes a day. thought she's being pretty fair on that based on her tone. So I said, really, then, you're having spiritual struggles in your life, so you're starving spiritually, but you spend half the amount of time you do on that for your physical needs. And you have spiritual and physical needs, agreed? Yes. So why would you only spend 15 minutes a day on your spiritual needs when you're starving to death? Don't you think you would double down and spend more time doing these things? The formula is really easy. Trust God, 
move on what he says to do. Do what he's telling you to do, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And it's a consistent biblical concept if we do what he says. So I just like the phrase, as for me, being on the way, the Lord has led me to the house of my master's brethren. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says the same thing. Don't trust me, it's all through the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. It's really simple. The paths get straight. They're directed if you start doing what he's asked you to do. If you've never had a chance to pray this prayer, consider the degree to which you're letting go and you're letting God lead lead your life. Do his will today. Don't wait on it. Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me, being on my way, the Lord has led me to the house of my master's brethren. That's quite a prayer. Hallelujah prayer. That's not a give me something, I need something. It's just a hallelujah. Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. Verse 28. So the young woman ran, and to- so she still has energy to run, apparently. She was a firecracker, and told her mother's household these things. My notes, it just says, again with the running. So uh, I think she's excited in part because she would have known who Abraham was. Because Nahor would have said, oh, yeah, you've got family over there. They're doing quite well. They're living with the Canaanites. He loves the Lord, too, and whatnot. And, and, you know, maybe someday you can meet him. And I think he has a son about your age or something like that. So she finds out, and she's probably pretty excited, too. Obviously, the Holy Spirit had been working on her because she just felt led to feed a stranger's camels. Um, Running to the house also is, uh, so one thought is, uh, that was not a very deep thought about the running. Here is a deep thought about the running. (laughs) Running is an act of courtesy to her family because by running ahead, she's giving her family time to prep to host. So she's, even though she's probably exhausted by this point, she's actually hustling a little bit because she cares about the needs of other people more than herself. And I thought that was kind of a, a thought. So she's being respectful of that. Verse 29. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban, Laban, if you translate it, just means white. I don't know what that means, but I looked it up. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, when he heard the words of his sister Rebecca saying, thus the man spoke to me, that he went to this man. And there he stood by the camels at the well, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Uh, Three hints on Laban. One, he sees the jewelry, and that's what makes him act. Later on, we're going to see from Laban that money matters to Laban more than anything else. In fact, he's easily willing to betray other people for the sake of money. So he sees the wealth, and he's already sold. It's like, you had me at nose ring. Um, and he's in love. And what good fortune. We have a rich man that wants my sister. Um, Second, it seems like Laban Laban here is representing his family. In other words, in the same way that Abraham was getting old, uh, Laban's father, uh, Nahor, would be getting kind of old too. So the moving around thing is probably on Laban's plate at this point. Bethuel then is alive, but he's getting older. Not Nahor, Bethuel, Bethuel, sorry. Um, And then a third thing, if someone wants, is given my sister loot down at the well, as a good brother, I want to know who this guy is, right? 
And I think that that's kind of that protective thing, which shows you something about how tight this family was. So yes, he noticed the money, but maybe to spin that positive, he also is running because he's like, I want to know who this weird guy is that's giving my sister nose rings and bracelets and things like that. So he's checking in on it and he'll get there. Uh, Verse 32, then the man, the servant, came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet um, and the feet of the men who were with him. So by bringing 10 camels, he'd need a large crew of people. He came with a whole ensemble of people. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've told about my errand. What an awesome servant. I'm not going to take care of myself until I've taken care of my master's duties. And I, we see that all the way through the Middle Ages. A messenger won't really rest until the message is delivered. Um, and I think that's really cool. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed me and my master greatly. And he has become great. My master is rich. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he was given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from the family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. This is key. And I don't want to read over that part too quick. He's just repeating everything Abe said. And yeah, yeah, you know, there's redundancy here. He's excited about it. But it's, in, it's important to note that he's sharing all of this with Rebecca's family. He's telling his God story. This is the setup. This is what's happening. Notice that he concentrates on his master. He really never talks about himself. And I think that's super cool. For the typology, if you go to John 16, um, we see this kind of work with the typology too. Listen to how the Holy Spirit is talked about and compare the Holy Spirit to the servant. So John 16, verse 13 are you flipping there? No. Okay. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All the things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. There'll be this Holy Spirit that has all authority and all the stuff of the master that will speak on the authority of the master and will glorify the master and he will tell you of the things that are to come next. So when you look at what's going on here and and how that matches up, it had to be pretty cool when Jesus was talking to the Jewish people who would have known this story going, oh, are you calling yourself God? Like, really? Are you comparing yourself to Abraham? Which would have seemed pretty audacious unless there was part of you that knew it was true. And you realized, wow, this is pretty cool. There's not one word of complaint from the servant. You'd think he'd be like talking about how sore his butt was, that he had had to deal with the spitting camels, that it was hot and it was nasty and uh, he was sticky, but he doesn't want to shower. There's not one word of complaint from this guy. He just celebrates the Lord. 
So by sharing this, the servant really takes the pressure away from the family. He's basically, and I think this is really important. This is why I stopped on verse 41. He's basically saying, you don't have to accept my offer. Like this is totally voluntary. I was sent here by the father. I'm making an appeal. I want you to be a bride and come with me, but you don't need to feel obligated to do this. There's no forced compulsory relationship with the father, with the son, or with the Holy Spirit. No pressure. The responsibility then shifts with the statement, Rebecca doesn't have to feel obligated. In other words, those gifts she got were freebies. The people can reject, and there's no oath that would hold to this. And even the servant is saying, heck, I'm off the hook if you say no. I'll just go find, I'll start asking other people at the well tomorrow night. Also, this is a model for how to share the enthusiasm for the Lord. Um, And he just keeps pointing people to the Lord. Verse 42, and this day I came to the well and I said, so he's still telling his God story. Oh, Lord God of my master, if you now prosper the way in which I should go, behold, I stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass that when a virgin comes out to draw water, I shall say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink and I will draw for your camels too. Let the woman be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. It's like, this guy's like, so then I said this and then she said this and then I said that. And he's just telling the whole story back and notice that he had etched it in. He's pretty much getting the story word for word, which is nice. I like the behold, I stand by the well of water is really simple to Jesus's language, similar to Jesus's language when he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm just knocking. I'm just here doing my thing, inviting. I want to come in. I want to be part of your home. The redundancy here is super healthy. And for little Jewish kids studying the Old Testament for hundreds of hundreds of years, this redundancy would have meant, remember this story. Remember what God did here. And when it gets repeated in the Bible like that, it means to memorize it, soak it in, retell it. Verse 45. But before I finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder. And she said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels a drink also. And then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, and from Milka, whom Milka bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist and I bowed my head and I worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who led me in the way of the truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for a son. Now, if you'll deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I might turn to the right hand or the left. I'll go talk to somebody else. But I think in his head, he's like, I found the one here. And if she's not going to say yes, then I might just head back. Because this is all too much of a God story. I have to think this is where God wants me to go. So he tells the story. He leaves the, at the end of the God story, there's a point of decision. Which way will you go? Are you going to trust the promise of a groom, the promise of purpose in her life, the promise that God has spoken through multiple people here, or are you going to walk away from it? And if you want to walk away from it, just say so. This is why it drives me crazy when you get Christians that don't live the Christian faith. If you don't want to be a Christian, don't be a Christian. Walk away. It's a free thing. You don't have to do it. On the other hand, there's this call to adventure, which is pretty amazing. Hop on my camels 
and I'm going to take you to a land you've never been to meet a groom you've never met who's been preparing a place for you for 40 years. Because Isaac's got wealth, he's got things set up, and the call to adventure for Rebecca, who runs back and forth to do things, had to be amazing. Like, this is the moment she's been waiting for. And this is the thing where the Holy Spirit's moving, things are happening, he finishes his story and he says, come away with me and let's do a new life together. Let's start something totally different with your nose ring. (laughs) Verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We can't speak to you either bad or good. In other words, Laban is now here and Bethuel is probably an old man laying on his bed. And they're like, wow, this comes from God. We can't, we can't say bad or good. What do you mean you can't say bad or good? This is good. This is really cool. Lukewarm people. 51, here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. So we can't say bad or good about this. You can have our daughter. Well, that's nice. They believe. They act. It's not enthusiastic. It's kind of level-headed. It's not as, as, as uh, excited as Rebecca was or the servant is, but they act, and that's good. I don't think the servant's wealth hurt in this situation either. The gifts show the bride's family that the groom is able to provide for the bride well. That's part of Jewish history. The reason why young Jewish men had to go prepare a place for the bride beforehand was to prove to the bride's family that he actually could make a living and that he could take another person into his household because he had the wealth and wherewithal to do it. This is why Grant has said he's not really dating right now because he'd like to figure out how to make a living first and then start dating when he can actually move forward on some of those things. Um, So it's a Jewish tradition, it's an old tradition, but having all that wealth there basically proved to Rebecca's family that whoever the servant represented was able to, to take care of her. So this wouldn't have been a really uncommon thing for a family to say, yes, you can have her, because and, and, the goal was to marry off your children. It's still the, jo- the goal of a lot of Jewish families to marry off their children. Um, if you know Jewish people, that can often be a joke about Jewish grandmothers and whatnot, is that they would push to get married to a good Jewish girl. And it came to pass... Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord, he bowed himself down to the earth. So again, this servant just keeps giving the credit to God, the glory to God. And how cool to meet somebody, but when you're talking to him, they keep dropping to the ground and praising the Lord in the middle of the conversation. It's undeniable that this person serves God and not this conversation. And I think that's cool. However, saying praise God to people can get them upset with you. I speak from personal experience. So it does happen when you say, praise the Lord, that's amazing. Some people don't want to hear that. Um, But it's cool to see the servant that does this, bows himself down to the earth. Frankly, we don't practice the bowing down to the earth thing much in our society, but I think it's a cool tradition. And if we brought it back, we would really stun people. Um, (laughs) Then the the servant, I want to do it just in the middle of an apartment meeting. I'm just going to drop to the ground and start praising the Lord. And and I think people would think I'd gone nuts. (laughs) 53, then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing. Textiles would have been really valuable in ancient societies. Um, even through the Middle Ages, like textiles were extremely valuable. Um, and he gave them to Rebecca. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Immediately, the, the decision gets made. We're going. We're going to follow Jesus. 
all these gifts get poured out on everybody involved. In the same way the Holy Spirit, there's an immediate outpouring of praise and an anointing. If people remember the day, if they weren't kids and grew up in a Christian household, a lot of times when people are older and they remember the day they decided to follow the Lord, they also often remember high emotional experiences that go with that. Even psychologists have studied it, and it's a really a unique thing in human experience that, a, that around the world, Christians that get saved or say a prayer of salvation or make a commitment or a covenant to the Lord, there's this exuberant, the exuberance that comes with it, and it's a really consistent phenomenon. Verse 54, And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Let's party. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. There's no breaks for this servant. He's still on the job, and I think that's cool. Uh, so there's a, a feast. They refresh themselves, but right away in the morning, he wants to go back to his master and get this job done. Verse 55, but her brother and her mother said, well, let the young woman stay with us for a few days, at least 10. After that, she can go. And he said to them, don't hinder me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away so that I might go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and we'll ask her personally. And then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. The bride says, I want to be with the son. Cool addition to the story here. And it flies in the face of the stereotype of ancient cultures. Seemingly the father should give the blessing, but notice that it's the mom and the brother that has this challenge that comes up, this 10-day please stay with her. The timing's really significant. We see in this text a mutual respect. There's a partnership between Rebecca and Laban and Bethuel and the mom uh, that they bring her in to make a decision. It's really interesting in terms of the typography because the bride, which is not normal to ancient societies, that the bride would make this choice. But in this situation, and I think it's important for what God's trying to do by painting a picture, and I think it's beautiful, Rebecca gets to choose. She ultimately gets to choose if she's going to go or not, right? Ultimately, her family decided, yes, you can go be this person's bride. But there's this moment where she gets to make a choice. She has to say yes or no. And I think that's super cool because it's the exact same situation that we as the bride of Christ get to make too. It's an individual choice. We can't pass it off on our parents. We can't let our brothers and sisters make it for us. At some point, it comes right down to the individual saying, will you go? Will you follow the Lord? Or won't you? So when Jesus calls, <laughs> there's always a reason to wait and do it tomorrow and take 10 more days. Well, you've accepted the Lord, but you don't really need to do anything with that right now. You've got schoolwork to take care of and you've got vacations to take and you've got other things to do with your life. Why would you start giving up your time to go do this following the sun stuff. There's always a reason to wait. In this case, though, Rebecca does the right thing. She doesn't wait. She says, I'll go. I'll go right now. And that makes her an extremely special bride, the perfect bride for Isaac. Remember when Tara left Ur and stopped in Haran. That's the name of the place. Haran. In chapter 11, Abe was called to go to the promised land, but remember he sat and he waited. And because of that, a large part of his life just got wasted. It wasn't that God didn't love him or that he wasn't part of the plan, but he wasted his life not following the Lord. This is 10 days that Rebecca doesn't get to be with her groom. Why wait that long? 
Get married right now, and you're going to see how exuberant she is to make this marriage happen. This is not marital advice, by the way. <laughs> this is important for the typography. Rebecca says she'll go. It's essentially what God asks of all of us. If the world can't keep you, it at least wants a farewell party. Don't give the world a farewell party. If you're being called by the Holy Spirit to do something and your job has this or that or whatever, then I'm a bad example because I'm a rolling stone in the workplace. But if God calls you to do something, do it now. Why wait on something else? Sometimes God gives you a job that's pretty brain dead, right? And then you can focus on stuff for the kingdom because God's got a job that doesn't require a lot of your cognitive load. And that's kind of a good thing too. But either way, don't wait. If God wants to mold you, if he wants to form you, if he wants to give you this big adventure, why would anyone wait on that adventure? Why, what does the world possibly have to offer that counteracts the adventure that God has for us? So even if it means a long camel ride, <laughs> just put that in there, even if it means a long camel ride, um, sometimes the path to where God wants us isn't always fun. So she has a long camel ride ahead of her. And now that she's fed all the camels, they're going to assume, well, Rebecca gets the water for the camels. They're going to put it on Rebecca the whole journey. <laughs> Poor girl. Verse 59. So they sent away Rebecca and their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca, and they said to her, so we get to see a blessing that they put on her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. This is an interesting blessing to give your daughter. Read that again. May you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. Did they know the promise that God made to Abraham? Because remember when Abraham left Ur, he didn't have numbers. He was just told he would have a descendant, right? Later, as he followed God, he got this idea of things. So either the servant had told about this and then they give it in their blessing, or they're wishing on their daughter thousands of children. That sounds painful. Um, but there, there's this vision that they have too, must be Holy Spirit inspired, that she's going to be the mother of tens of thousands. And I think that's cool. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Again, that's a curious thing to bless your daughter with as she's going off on a young marriage. When you're married and you're, you're, at, you're at your wedding day, I doubt anyone says, may your descendants hold the gates of those who hate them. Um, this is a promise that's been floating around for a while. Um, remember that Jesus lived and died on the cross. His bride willingly gets to choose to go with him on that. But once the choice is made, the blessings not only are going to multiply, but the blessings include conquering the enemy. And I think that's kind of cool that this family, who's not necessarily in Abraham's world, gives this particular blessing. And it's the same blessing that fits the typology that it's what we're promised to. Matthew 16, verse 18, essentially says that this is what we have too. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevent, prevail against it. The church, the bride, the gates of hell don't prevent against it. We're going to get those gates. Jesus knows, I think, he knew exactly what he was saying here. And I think Jesus read this blessing, and he knew that it was meant to be something that the church would do for him. Jesus, our groom, 
knows that we're getting ready to fight a battle. And for those of us that like to play airsoft, the idea of going into a battle and into combat has a certain romance to it for a lot of people. That this is part of the adventure, this battle that's coming. So when Jesus is saying this, he's saying the church, his bride and him, they're taking back creation from the enemy. This thing where Adam and Eve fell, that's going to end. And part of what's going to happen here is that there is war coming and we're going to take back creation. And the church has, since its inception, continued to take territory away from the enemy and made this earth a more hospitable place to live overall. People argue about that too, but we'll get to that in other places. Verse 31, Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Remember, this is a long journey. They get to talk the whole way back. And what, do the, what does the servant and Rebecca, or the Holy Spirit and the bride, what do they do before they meet the groom? They're going to tell stories. And they're going to talk. And I'm sure that the servant is telling Rebecca all about Jesus, or all about Isaac. Here's what, you know, this is, this is what he's like, and this is what he's done. And, oh, yeah, he laid on an altar for his dad. There's all these things. And Rebecca's getting to know all about him on the way back. So verse 62 now Isaac came from the way of Be'er Lehe Roy, for he dwelt in the south. Uh, Be'er Lehe Roy is the well of the living one that sees me. Just so you know that. First to mention uh, Isaac since he went to the altar to die. This is the first time we see Isaac's name since he went up that hill to the altar. He's back. He's back in the story. And there's a bride. Rebecca just spent a long journey. Uh, and got to hang out with her camel friends, and they spit. Verse 63, And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes, and he looked, and there the camels were coming. Because <laughs> that's the first thing you would see from a distance, is the camels. You might even see that they spit. I should have said, by the way, at the beginning, this is a very long chapter, but we're almost there. Then Rebecca lifted her eyes, verse 64, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It's my master. You notice his master just shifted gears? Who was his master through the whole story? Abraham. It's my master. It is my master. So she took a veil and she covered herself. The next time we see the son is when the bride is taken to him. I love the question, who is this man? It's the question of all humanity. Who is this man? The question we have to wrestle with, who is this man? Not Isaac, but Jesus. The only, it's, it's used only elsewhere in the Bible in reference to Jesus. So every time we see a, a, the phrase, who is this man? This is the only situation where it's Isaac. In every other situation, it's about Jesus. Matthew 8.27, Mark 4.41, Luke 8.25. I'll read you the Luke one. Then he asked them, where is your faith? And the disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man? They asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. Luke 7.49, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? Luke 9.9, 9, 
I beheaded John, Herod said. So who is this man about whom I hear such stories? And he kept trying to see him. doesn't matter what side of the question you're on. If you're on Herod's side of the question or if you're on the disciples' side of the question, who is this man is the central question of the entire story. It would be very appropriate in a typography. If God's trying to paint a picture of the gospel, this is the picture. And the final question is, who is this man? Two things to notice then, if we're getting really particular in verse 64. Notice that she lifted her eyes. I lift my eyes to the heavens. We see lifting eyes going on a lot. Notice that she lifts her eyes. She sees Isaac. She gets off her camel. Again, she moves first. And then she says, who's this man in the field to meet us? There's a part of us where seeking the Lord, seeking our master is upon us to lift our eyes, to look, to dismount off our camel, to stop taking the journey that we're on and go towards that servant. She's probably just happy to get off the camel. (laughs) And you know that camels, they spit, yeah. So who's this man uh, is the question. Regardless of apologetics, I've been listening to a lot of apologetics this week, by the way. I've been eating them up on YouTube. I can hear all the greats on YouTube. It's great. Geek out on some Alvin Planiga and do that kind of thing. Alvin Planiga. Um, It's interesting, even regardless of that, the covenant with Jesus has to have a spirit revealed to people. I've never seen people lose an argument and come into salvation. It's always this thing where they see love, they see joy, they see healthy families, healthy marriages, they see people that love life, they see enthusiastic people like Rebecca, and you're like, wow, who's this man that you follow? And the correct answer is the exact same one that the servant says, it's my master. What you see in me is not important. It's the master that puts in me a heart that is what you are attracted to. And that's what brings people into the kingdom. And I think that's what's here too. Rebecca doesn't need arguments. She just needs to know who that man is. Isaac must have, okay, must have is a strong word. Likely, she thought Isaac was a good looking man. And that explains what we're about to see here. Um, My master uh, is actually the Hebrew word Adon, which is the root word of Adonai. So when he says he is my master, it is my master, that's actually just the one word, who's this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant says, Adonai. And that's it. And that's where we start to see that. It it means master, owner, sovereign, Lord. Um, It's the same word that Sarah called Abraham. Uh, It's the same word that Lot called the angels. It's the same word that Ephron called Abraham, my Lord. The servant uses it with Abraham, and now he uses it for Isaac. The servant serves both the father and the son. The blessing, then, the inheritance, is clear. As soon as the bride gets back to Jesus, the mastery of Isaac becomes part of the story. Jesus says, I am in the father, and the father is in me. He also makes the inheritance perfectly clear, and the authority of Jesus is claimed by Jesus regardless of what any critics say. Jesus said he was had the authority of the Father in heaven. So he made claims that should have gotten him killed by the Jews, which is he claimed to be God, and that's a bad thing to do in the Jewish culture. 
So she took a veil and she covered herself. We still use veils today. It's a custom. The idea is I'm going to humble myself before I give myself to this person. Um, I think the veil's there partially to hide brides that aren't particularly good looking too. Um, but I don't think that's what's going on with Rebecca. We've already seen that she's beautiful. So the veil has to mean some other things. But it's one way a, a family could give away a daughter and you know not have the groom see beforehand. But is that bad of me? <laughs> it symbolizes humility, a covering, uh, uh, the same kind of covering that God gives to people. And the servant, and, and typology-wise, the same kind of covering that when we go to heaven, we are covered by the, the, the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what gets us into the marriage, is that we also are covered. And I don't know if that's part of what's going on here too, but just a thought. Verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. I like that they don't repeat the whole story a third time. <laughs> we just get the all things that he had done. What a feast. What an amazing moment. So the servant finishes his task. Namelessly, the, the servant finishes his task, reports everything to his master, doesn't go to Abraham and tell him all about it. He just, that that authority has moved to Isaac and the story is going to move with Isaac. The next chapter, we're going to see things wrapped up with Abraham. He's going to die. Um, so I don't mean to give too much away, but at this point, the, the story has been handed over to Isaac now that he has his bride. Verse 67, then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. I'm going to pick that apart, even though it seems really obvious what's going on in the tent. <laughs> I think it's cool that this is all being blessed, that this is all a holy thing that's happening here. I love that there's no hesitation, which is abnormal. There should be a big, long wedding affair. Even in this culture, there should have been a thing, right? A waiting period. Remember when Sarah went into the Pharaoh's house and when she went into Abimelech's house? She remained pure even though she was living in that house because there's a period of waiting in all of these cultures. Brides don't just jump into mom's tent, but here they do. And that what's abnormal to this culture is perfectly normal to the narrative we see in the New Testament. That when we are brought home, there is rejoicing in heaven when somebody comes. The angels celebrate when a person comes into the kingdom there is no hesitation on the groom's part and there's no hesitation from the bride that when the wedding feast of the land happens, it is pure celebration and joy. And I think that's really cool. God has his hand in all of this. Isaac is good to go. He hears the story from the servant and he's like, that sounds like a God story. I'm in. And she's cute, right? So he's okay with that. And that there's more to marry there Look carefully, there's four different ways that he that he embraces Rebecca, if you look at each of the words. Bo, Lakak, Ishta, and Havav. He brought her, which means to welcome someone into the family. So he brought her or accepted her. Do you see that? He brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, which is even symbolic of bringing her into the family. Jesus says that the Gentiles that come into the faith will be grafted into the vine that they'll be brought into the family. The second word, he took her, he took Rebecca, is lachak, 
which is easily the marital sense of the word. There's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a more broad sense of the word. He takes her in every way uh, to carry away, to receive her. Uh, but it's more than just a physical sense. He took her in all senses. So that Hebrew word means to take something in completely. So he just took her in, right? And she became his wife, Ishash, which is wifed. That is the sexual act, right? There's a, and in this sense, I think the symbolism here, it's not just sex. It's he consummated the covenant of marriage. It's a done deal. And in that society, the act of sex would have consummated or made the covenant. So in the same way, um, she's brought into the family. So is the church. Accepted in every way, despite sin, right? Completely brought in. The same way we're brought in when we're covered by the blood of the lamb. We get consummated into the covenant. And that covenant to Abraham is the Jewish people. But anyone who accepts Christ is now part of that covenant. They've been brought into it intimately and completely. And then loved. And I love that part. (laughs) that it's there too. She became his wife and it's not the same thing. You can bring somebody into your family. You can take them in and take responsibility for them. And you can even have a wife in a wifely kind of way or a groom. But then the love is also there. And that doesn't have to be the case. God doesn't have to love us. He could just tolerate us, right? He could just take us in and say, no, you have a new playground in heaven and here you go. But there's a love there, havav. He loved her. It's the root word for affection of all kinds. It's more than just being a lover. It's being a friend, being dear to someone. It, 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 in terms of levels of, of love and affection, uh, the havav is really all kinds of affection. In the same way Jesus befriends us, he loves us, he cares for us, and he's adopted us. So we see four levels of love, acceptance, hospitality, marriage, and love itself. And it doesn't, one doesn't necessitate the next, but they're all part of this narrative. And then we see the very end of the chapter is, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the same word that God uses uh, to be grieved at humans. This comforted is actually the word grieved. Um, Esau comforted himself this is another place where they used it when he comforted himself to kill Jacob (laughs) so it's the same word that gets used when God was grieved at human beings Um, it's the same word that the Egyptians use when they're grieved at the Israelites it's the same word as a number of situations that make it an odd word to use in this sentence. So Isaac was grieved after his mother's death. And if you look at the root of that word, it actually means to turn or to shift polarity. It, it's a shifting. And it's symbolized by the actual word means to breathe deeply with a purpose or intent. So you make a decision and you go, <gasps> and now you're on this new path. That's what the word means, to So Isaac was breathed deeply and decided on a new path after his mother's death. Typology-wise, that's a really interesting word because it's the wedding feast of the Jesus Christ and the bride of the church that sets a new course for the entire universe. And here, this is the thing where Isaac is then comforted after this sort of thing. Oh, and the word, by the way, is nacham, 
which is to draw breath forcefully in terms of making a decision or moving forward on something. So Isaac takes a deep breath. He finds peace in the finality of purpose. He's a 40-year-old that just got his wife, and it's good. And he's decided, I now know what my life is all about. He's ready to move on. He's ready for the next phase. He's ready for chapter 25. He's done grieving. He's turned. He's moving past his thing with his mom. Um, that said, I wanted to talk about grieving, too, a little bit, because they mention it. Um, or not. <laughs> grieving happens differently throughout the Bible. There's lots of different situations with grieving. Um And we've talked about this already before, but even Jesus himself dealt with grieving in different ways with different people. And this is something that I think, for Isaac, this is what got him past his mom's thing, is now he's got this wonderful bride, this new phase of his life has begun, and he's ready to turn towards that new adventure. Um, the covenant between Christ and his bride, and I'll wrap up on these thoughts, this idea that is, is that Isaac turns and he's decided is the same idea that the covenant between Christ and his bride, or the law, Sarah's tent, and if Sarah represents the law, is that this bride fills the gap that the law makes. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thought, is that this is all of human history. This is what makes it all worth it for God. Why would God invent this world that has sin and death and bad things in it? Why would he do all of this? Using the topology, and please take this with a word of salt, or take this with a grain of salt, it's because he wants to be in that tent. And that's what makes it all worth it. That's what makes the spitting camels worth it. That what That's what makes the jugs of water worth it. That's what makes the journey worth it. That's what, meant me, what makes putting your hand under an old guy's thigh worth it. All of this stuff is worth it because the tent gets to happen. And that can be at a really base level. It's just the joy of getting married. Can't wait for that kind of moment, right? But at a symbolic, at a spiritual level, it's the joy of a relationship with the bride of the church that these people from all over the planet are going to choose Jesus Christ and choose to be with him. What an amazing feast to hang out at. Like, who do you get to sit next to at that feast? I'll be like turning, I'm like, like, wow, you're moody? Really? The moody? And I'll go over here and this is Spurgeon? And I'll be like, what am I sitting here for? You know? <clears throat> I know you're going to be sitting by the people from third day. So I, I know who my wife's hanging out with. But this idea of that's what it's all, all of human history is about that. All the bad things that happen in the world, all the spitting camels that are out there are worth it because you get to be in the tent with Jesus. You get to get to that other point at the other end. And it doesn't mean there isn't a big journey to get there, but it makes all of human history worth it. This is the original plan that God had in the Garden of Eden, and it's the plan for the universe. And I thought that was really cool. Symbolically, right? God didn't come to abolish the law. The memory of Sarah is holy. It's good and it's wonderful. And even Jesus said in Matthew 5:17, "Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill." This is what Sarah worked for is Isaac and having this kind of moment there. So the fact that it's in Sarah's tent and the, the idea that the law is dead, it's not dead, it's fulfilled. This was the plan from the beginning. So despite the pain, despite the amount of sin that the, the law makes us realize we have, um, there's still this thing where it gets taken care of in the marriage. 
I know that's a lot of symbolism, and I typically don't do a lot of that. I wouldn't do it if Paul didn't say in multiple places, and if Jesus didn't use this language from this passage. But a lot of the words and the word usage that we see in the New Testament really mirrors what we're doing here, so it's hard to not say, look at the symbolism here. Even if you take away all the symbolism, what a great story of a guy that tells a God story, brings a bride back to Isaac, and he enthusiastically jumps in the tent with her, and they're married like now, right? And you just see a love affair in the Bible that's beautiful, that Rebecca got to make a choice to be a part of, and that Isaac got to make a choice to be a part of, and you see this, well, not so young couple, um, but basically becoming the next generation of the plan of God towards Messiah. And I can make those statements without looking at any of the symbolism here. And it's still an amazing story, even at face value. Um, but do look into the symbolism and start reading up on some of those things. And I don't know, if you see it that way too, then you can enjoy and be blessed by it. I initially said part of what the cool part about tonight's chapter was is that I look at it and see God painting a picture for us to see salvation. That everything that happened with Jesus was super orchestrated. And not a moment, not a word is out of place. And that's why it's really hard to, you know, when you're looking at something like the, the lineage of Rebecca at the end of chapter 22, and you're like, what is this doing here? And then you look back and you see it, and you're like, wow, this is incredible. Because God's doing all of these things with their lives to paint this perfect image of what it looks like to be married to Jesus Christ, to be on our way into a relationship and a wedding feast and a celebration where we are loved in every possible way. Um, that we get to spiritually be part of that communion with God and that God wants that and is excited about it. And he sent his servant to round us up around the planet and bring us home. And that's exactly what's going on and exactly what the servant was meant to do and what the Holy Spirit's still doing. That there are gifts that we get when we have that. That those gifts, nose ring-like gifts, show right up as soon as we accept Jesus. And I think that's really cool too. So with that said, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the story of a servant on camels can bring us closer to you, and we can see your plan. We can see your hand in all of it. Thank you, Lord, that you answer our prayers before we start praying. Thank you that you ask something of us, that we have to step in order to stand where you want us. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to give all glory to you, to be servants, Lord. Um, of the best kind, that, that we don't matter and that our stories are not as important as your story. And that when people see anything else of, of value, we point them right to you. All wealth, all resources, all the things that we have, Lord, are things you've blessed us with. They belong to our master. So Lord, help us to just elevate you and lift you up. Help us to use our gifts and talents to glorify you. Um, Lord, I pray especially for... Um, our workplaces, Lord, uh, the new workplaces, the workplaces we have yet to land, uh, the workplaces that you have shown us to be because we have masters here on earth that we have to serve to and help us to serve in such a way that we bring great glory not only to you but to the people we work for. Help us to pray for our masters, uh, to pray for those who are um, working um, uh, for us and um, on our behalf. Uh, Lord, help us to lift you up in those situations. Uh, Lord, we don't really throw ourselves on the ground in our culture, um, but help us to do the equivalent to where when people talk to us, all they see is a, a person who loves you, 
um, and that, that we do it in joy and we do it with enthusiasm. Help us to tell our God stories word for word, that when we're in the middle of a situation where you're at work, we whirl on the inside, but we etch it in stone at the same time, that we keep track of it and we're ready to tell it. Um, help us to just be good at that, Lord, that we don't have to argue people into heaven. We can just be so enthusiastic that they want to get to know our Lord. And we just love that um, idea. We love the ministry of it. And we just want to learn from everything we read in your word. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for all the people here, Lord. Bless us and go with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.